Nature Solutionaries is a podcast about conservationists who do amazing things for nature and bring inspiration into our lives. Hello, today I'm talking to Zoe Weil, the co-founder and president of the Institute for Humane Education and author of seven books and multiple TEDx talks. Zoe speaks at universities, conferences and schools globally about how our education should go far beyond just having good grades and a diploma. She's convinced that in today's world with so many pressing global problems, we should give people the knowledge, tools and motivation to become change makers for a healthy and humane world for all. One evening I watched all her six TEDx talks and was blown away by her wisdom and passion. I can't wait to talk to her today. So um, let me start with my first question. Um, I noticed that whenever I organized or participated in uh, volunteering events like a river cleanup or planting trees, it was really hard to find volunteers who would spend a day or just a few hours doing something for others or for the environment. And I sometimes feel like we live in a very passive society where people are artificially busy, but they're not doing much for society or for the environment. And my question is, um, why are so few people involved in doing something good voluntarily for the society or for the environment? I think people, it's interesting the, the language you used there, because I think people are incredibly busy. Now, whether they're busy doing things that matter is an important question, but people feel incredible pressure, whether it's young people in school or it's parents with children or it's you know people just uh, trying to pay their rent or pay their mortgage and put food on the table. And there isn't... I don't think we've cultivated a culture of service except in in certain communities. So you may have religious communities that sort of have a service component. Um, in schools, you can have community service as a required course or a required uh, activity for graduation. But that ethos of being involved in one's community um, and contributing and doing good. I think you're right that that it, it isn't embedded in um, cultures. It's embedded in certain families, but not um, not in today's world. And I think that much of what we're trying to do in terms of changing education, which we'll, I know we're going to get to, is in some sense a subtle shift on what needs to be done and a way of engaging people that's going to really matter. You mentioned pressure. Why do you think that everyone is so, so much under pressure, including all age groups and all categories 
of people? Uh, you know, things have sped up so fast. So whether it's a kid feeling pressure to get good grades and, you know, do well so that they can get a good job or they can go to a good college or whatever, or, or and even have enough money to be able to afford that in the United States, you know, people go into debt sometimes, you know, $100,000 to be able to pay for college. I mean, that there's there's that kind of pressure on young people. There's um, there's all of the busyness that has taken over our lives, um, even with just you know our phones and with social media and and things that aren't really important, but we've come to see them as important, and they take up time. Um, and you know whether. It's pre-COVID commutes that people would have to make further and further away, or it's negotiating how to do your job working from home. I mean, there are just so many pressures on people, whether they are the, well, I'll say one more thing about that, is the news is also an additional stressor and pressure, uh, and pressure on people because um, the news is just an endless 24-hour cycle of uh, grimness and um, and horror and f- fear-inducing information. You know, it used to be that even though we had access to the news, you know, it was it was the news and it was on for an hour in the evening, or, and there was one paper you would get in the morning, you couldn't just be reading the news while you're in bed scrolling on your phone and just being inundated. So that is a stressor that people often put on themselves to just stay up to date all the time, constantly inundating themselves. And young people know so much about the world that is awful that, you know, when I was growing up, we just didn't know that much. I mean, I grew up, I was a child during the Vietnam War, and that was on the news every night. So I knew about this far off, terrible thing. But it wasn't, everything wasn't an existential threat where there's, you know, fires raging, and you know where they're raging, and you know that they're, you know, 90% uncontained. And, and there's a, a, a war in Ukraine, and there's starvation in Yemen. And, and you, you just know about so much. Uh, you meaning all of us, and that is stressful. Now, one could think, well, well, that could lead directly to then a service orientation and and volunteerism. Um, but there's also this sense of despair, like what's what can I possibly do? You know, how can participating in some activity that removes litter from a community park possibly matter in the scheme of things? Um, and again, I'll get into how we can shift this. Well, um, speaking of that community cleanup and and the scale of, for example, um, climate change, I get that, that people can sometimes feel... Um, Hopeless, and I've also noticed that in a couple of local, um, I live in a small town, and there are a couple of organizations, whether they are um, hikers club or an environmentally focused organization or others. The founders are mostly people in their forties or fifties, but they don't have anyone to to pass this organization 
on. There are very few young members. And that's what I was also uh, curious about. Like, is this um, pass passivity or passiveness only um, in young people? Or, or why is it so hard for these organizations to find young people and engage them in local um, community work or, as you say, the service sector? So I don't know that young people are unengaged. I think that they're um, they're not being fully supported and directed toward really pursuing their passions and aligning those passions with making a difference. And I think a lot of local organizations can feel, um, I mean, I, I'm just guessing here because I don't, I haven't done research on this, but I could imagine that for a lot of kids, they feel too local, too small. The problems are so big and what they need to feel hopeful and, um, and, and feel like they can make a difference is, is work that literally makes a difference where they can see um, real systemic change happen. Um, so that could be part of the problem. It could be also many of our nonprofits are, um, they might be a little out of date for today's world. Now, that's not to say that what they're doing isn't still necessary, but they may not be meeting the, the, the moment for young people and where they see the necessary interventions and leverage points to create true systemic change. I think that you're probably right about that because when I think about those two organizations that I have in mind, they are they are a bit out out of date. Like yeah, that's that's true. And um another thing that comes to my mind is that maybe it's not a problem to get young people engaged in one time activities like okay let's all gather and let's clean up this park, but more in the long-term engagement and in, in running the organization. And, and So I think this is where um, our work at the Institute for Humane Education um, really has a corrective to this because um, we, we need to embed creating a more just, sustainable and humane world into the curriculum. It, it, none of this should be, a, this is what I do on my Saturday afternoon or after school. Um, it should be, this is how I am learning to think and act so that I can, through whatever my ultimate profession is or career is, can contribute. So, I, I think that we need to shift how we think about education so that young people really can be fully engaged. And whether that translates into what they might do on their weekends with their free time, which they won't feel like they have a lot of anyway, um, with all their after-school activities and their week. I mean, kids' lives are just tend to be so booked with one thing after another. And um, 
So it may not translate into exactly what you're saying, but my hope is that when this is embedded within school, what what ends up happening is this deep uh, engagement with thinking how we solve problems. And we don't know what they'll come up with for those local organizations that need some help, but they may come up with some actually really creative ideas that... Um, don't necessarily mean that they're going to be volunteering on a weekend, um, but that we have created different systems that are working in a more sustainable and healthy way, if that makes sense. It does make sense, yes. And what I found particularly interesting about what you said, I think it was in the previous answer, is uh, that some of these young people are hesitating whether to to get involved in local organizations because they want to work on something that's more that's bigger or that's more systematic and i'm exactly in that situation because for example i i can see that okay when i go for a walk with my kids i pick up litter because i don't like it when when uh, the the nature is dirty but obviously this is not going to solve the big problems but for example i can i can get other people Uh, who are local do it with me and it's also nice because you, you meet other people but when you focus on these big issues like let's say uh, women's empowerment, family planning or climate change these are so huge problems that that they are not necessarily done here from this place where I live and so you and it's hard to get involved because wh where where do you go to do that Where, how do, how can you volunteer for what organization you would have to do everything online and then you're losing this aspect of volunteering which is great because you meet other people so how do you um, if you know what I mean like how can you combine this having a work that has great impact but at the same time that isn't just you being closed in a room behind a computer and being isolated? So that's a great question. One of the things I'd like to distinguish between is humanitarian acts and solutionary acts. Um, so when you're doing um, like a litter cleanup in your community, that's a humanitarian act. And by that, I mean, um, you know, you're doing something because you have a problem right there. You're not actually solving the problem because next week there's going to be more litter. Um, a solutionary act would be you're going to try and do something that stops the cycle. So there's no litter next week or next month or next year. And that can still be local. So it doesn't, It uh, one can tackle issues that are really big issues, whether they're, you know, human rights issues or climate change issues or animal cruelty issues, and, and focus on changing a system locally. And one can do that without being isolated behind one's computer by collaborating with other people who care. So whether that's your classmates in school who care about some issue you care about, whether it's, um, you know, community members who are passionate about some issue, um, getting together to maybe create a piece of legislation or do an education campaign, something that could lead to systems change. For, for kids, it could be changing things in their own school. So let's say they're concerned about climate change, huge issue. How are they going to address climate change as, you know, a 
seventh grader, you know, 12-year-old, um, well, they might be able to change some aspects of their school that are contributing to climate change. So they might be able to work to change what's the food that's served in the cafeteria, or they might be able to work to get solar panels installed, or they might be able to work to um, create a composting system and a, a paperless school so they're not contributing to so much resource depletion. I mean, there's all, or, you know, uh, changing the, the um, light bulbs, even in their school, while that doesn't seem like much, you know, if the school hasn't made a shift to LEDs, or if they're, you know, they could, if they don't have skylights and a lot of natural light, students could work on something like that. There are just so many ways that a global issue can be worked on locally in in a solutionary way so so that young people and anybody really can get experience solving a challenge in a systemic way that can then be scaled up. So let's say you do something in your school, like you um, manage to change what's served in the school cafeteria so that it's um, more sustainable, more humane, more just. Well, that could then spread to the school systems around you, to the whole city, uh, to the whole country, right? Those, that kind of scaling up. And meanwhile, students are reaching out to plenty of stakeholders to do this. So they're building community of stakeholders. They're listening to a lot of people. That's the solutionary approach. And it's so satisfying because, um, you know, you solve that problem you don't have to come back next week and do another, you know, litter removal. You've actually solved that problem and you can scale up. Wow, that's that's cool. And unfortunately, when I was a student, I never learned anything like this. When I was in the college, I never learned anything about this solutionary approach. And I wish I wish the students saw so education this way or could have access to this because they could see that they can really be change makers and they can transform things around them and that they shouldn't only focus on, as you say, the humanitarian actions, but on the solutionary actions. And sometimes when I did these um, small things for nature, like I collected frogs so that they are not uh, run over by cars or or uh, planted willows by the river for bees to pollinate them or participated in a cleanup of my hometown. Some people told me, come on, why do you bother? It doesn't make any difference. And these arguments didn't discourage me because I eventually did all those things, but it felt bad because I was happy that I was doing something good and yet people were discouraging me. So how can you cope with that, that you're actually Because mo the majority of people don't do anything like this and they, they try to discourage you. So so how can you cope with that? Um, you know, surrounding yourself with people who share your ethos is really important. Um, and as you meet people who believe in making a difference and contributing your circle then becomes those people. And, um, you know, the naysayers who, you know, tell you to get a life or you're wasting your time or whatever, they just fade out of your circle. Um, you know, one of the things that has been incredibly 
rewarding about my work is that it's brought amazing people into my life. If you build something, anything that is contributing um, and that is positive and that is solutionary, they will come, others will come, and then you're building together and you're reinforcing each other. So in some sense, for my work as a humane educator for now uh, 30 five years and a really long time I've been doing this work, it's been really heartening work. Um, And when I started this work, I didn't know what I was going to do that was going to contribute. I mean, I I loved doing uh, presentations and teaching about these issues and watching people become change makers because of what they learned. It was incredibly rewarding. But I also thought like, well, I should be an activist in other ways. I should do other things. And so, you know, I would show up on a weekend to leaflet about some issue and um, or go to some rally or, you know, do letter writing campaigns. And I do remember thinking like, if this is the way I need to be a quote unquote activist, I'm not going to last because it was so painful to me when people would, you know, yell at me or say, get a life or, you know, take my my flyer while I was leafleting and then, you know, throw it on the ground a hundred feet away and then it would become litter. And I just, I, I, it was, it was not work that was sustainable for me. Now for other people, it is. Other people really enjoy that work, but it didn't work for me. But being a humane educator did. And so I think it's really important that people find the ways to contribute that are most aligned with their personalities and their gifts and what they enjoy doing. Um, Because if you can find the place where what you care about, what you're good at and what you love to do meet, like you with being a solutionary journalist, you know, if you can do that, then your life becomes deeply meaningful and more impactful. But if you're sort of pushed into doing something because you're told you're supposed to, then that's a recipe for burnout. And one of my um, concerns with schools having community service programs for kids that are required for graduation is that it turns service into... um, just something you have to slog through, something that you're required to do as opposed to, wait, this is what we do. And and this is why solutionary learning and, and bringing the solutionary framework and embedding it into the curriculum is so powerful because it's not an add-on. It's not a thing you have to do. It's not like, oh, I have to, um, you know, do this to pass a test. No, this is a way of of taking what you care about using the the curriculum, literacy, numeracy, the scientific medicine, um, method, a, and integrating this way of thinking and acting so that it's just deeply engaging and meaningful and rewarding. And then it's a win for everyone, right? It's a, a win for kids. It's a win for communities and schools. It's a win for teachers. It's a win for the world. And How can people who are listening to this podcast apply the solutionary framework on their work? 
Great question. So maybe now's a good time to tell people what we offer at the Institute for Humane Education. So I urge anybody listening to go to our website, which is humaneeducation.org. And there you will find loads of free resources. And so we have a solutionary guidebook for educators who want to teach young people to be solutionaries, but we also have a companion guidebook for students and change makers and solutionaries in training called How to Be a Solutionary. And so anybody can download that and go through this process of identifying something they care about and learning how to be a solutionary and and doing this within a community of people, you know, find four friends who care about an issue that you care about or or one friend and do this work together. And we also have a solutionary micro-credential program and it's for educators um, and, and educator can be broadly defined, right? Parents are educators. So, you know, anybody who's listening who's a parent who's like, I'm not a teacher. Well, you are a teacher. And so you can uh, go through this program and um, we have a sliding scale. So it's affordable to anybody. And it, it goes through the process. It teaches you this process of how to be a solutionary and how to educate others to be solutionaries and to address a problem you care about. Um, and, you know, for those people who are like all in and thinking, this needs to be my career, we also have online graduate programs with Antioch University in the United States, but it's global. So we have students from around the world who are in our online graduate programs and learning how to take issues of human rights and environmental sustainability and animal protection and apply them to education and education again broadly and um, and become a humane educator. And so how would you define the, the word solutionary? Who is a solutionary for you? Yeah, <laughs> I probably should have done that a little while ago in this interview. So a solutionary is somebody who is able to identify unjust unsustainable and inhumane systems, and then transform them in ways that do the most good and the least harm for everybody. And when I say everybody, I mean people, animals, and the environment that sustains us. Okay, so who is a solutionary for you? Can you give us a few examples or explain? This is a lovely um, uh, definition, but people will probably need some uh, examples so they can imagine who a solutionary is. Okay, great. So, um, you know, earlier I talked about the difference between a humanitarian and a solutionary. And it's really important for me to stress that we need humanitarians. It's not an either or, like I'm a humanitarian or I'm a solutionary. All solutionaries are presumably humanitarians too. They're going to contribute to make a difference when um, there is immediate need. But they're also going to be thinking about how do I change the systems. So, um, there's also ways that people think about making a difference very individually. So I'll give you an example of um, a, a person who I consider to be a solutionary. His name is Bruce Friedrich, and um, he's trying to change the food system in uh, in the world, not just in the United States, although his, his organization, the Good Food Institute, is um, headquartered in the United States. So he is somebody who um, 
he became vegan uh, decades and decades ago, and he was educating people about food choices, um, encouraging other people to make uh, more plant-based dietary choices. And what he kept seeing and what I see as a humane educator myself is that you come up against these systems. And and the idea that we would um, focus primarily or solely on on people making individual dietary choices as opposed to working to change the systems itself is the difference between um, really solutionary thinking um, and maybe more developing solutionary thinking. And so what Bruce has, has been working on is promoting um, plant-based and cultivated meat. And by cultivated meat, I mean cell-grown meat. So using animal cells, it's actually meat. It's just not meat that comes through slaughtering an animal. So this is such a solutionary concept because as he and I in our careers have both seen, you know, you can talk about animal cruelty and environmental unsustainability and the human rights violations that happen in our animal agriculture system till the cows come home, an American expression that is apt for this analogy. And, um, and people, most people don't change their diets. They just don't. You know, they know, they know how cruel, they know how unsustainable, but they don't change their diets. Why? Um, because they, you know, it, it, any number of reasons. Like they allow their personal desires to eclipse their values. They don't want to think about it. Um, they choose not to think about it. It's inconvenient to think about it. They don't want to be different. They don't want to go to the family reunion and say, I'm not eating the barbecue. I mean, there are so many reasons. Um, and it takes you know, most people are not that motivated to align their personal choices with their values. That's just the reality. And I have had to come to terms with that as a humane educator um, over these decades and realize like, okay, how can we make it easy? Well, we change the system. So if what is served to you in your school cafeteria is plant-based meat and um, cultivated meat and everything sustainably produced and ethically produced and you are not abusing farm workers and in the process and you've created sustainable and humane food systems right there, well, everybody participates. Nobody's like, I refuse to eat sustainable, humane meat. Nobody says that, right? I mean... Most people don't say that. So by changing the system, everybody can participate. So that's just one example, right? If we change political systems, if we change energy systems, if we change transportation and production and construction systems, if we make it easy for people to do the more humane and sustainable thing, people will. We all participate in systems. And so to the degree that we can change the system as solutionaries, we make it possible for everybody to change. And do solutionaries do this um, as a part of their work or do they do it do this after work? Because if, if they, changing system must be really demanding and time consuming, right? So apparently Bruce came up with a business idea and um, it's his work as well. But what about others? 
Okay, so you think about all the people who um, whose work Bruce is promoting, right? All of those people who have gone into plant-based meat production or cultivated meat production. I mean, this is a burgeoning, multi-billion dollar endeavor. And so you can have budding scientists who go into that. You can have people who want to go into marketing and communications go into that. You can have so many different people. So if you think about every profession can become solutionary. So as young people uh, learn to be solutionaries in school, one of the things in my in my book, The World Becomes What We Teach, Educating a Generation of Solutionaries, we actually talk about having um, a career in technology education focused on solutionary careers. And so let's say somebody is not college bound, They're, they want to go into um, uh, plumbing, or they want to go into, um, they want to be an electrician, or they want to be uh, in construction. All of those uh, careers, all of those professions require solutionary thinking to change their systems. So you can be a solutionary plumber, a solutionary electrician, a solutionary roofer, and you're thinking in different ways about how to make the systems within your profession, sustainable, humane, and just. Now you can be, you know, heading toward uh, college and career. You can be a, a solutionary healthcare provider. You can be a solutionary politician. You can be a solutionary lawyer. Any field can become solutionary if you have this mindset and you work on shifting the systems within your profession. So there is no reason why a solutionary has to do their work as a volunteer on the weekends. This can be fully embedded into anybody's career path. But what about the employers who are not thinking this way? For example, what if, um, if someone is a doctor and he wants to, I don't know, Someone is a doctor employed in the hospital and he finds that the system is inhumane or unjust and he's trying to change it, but then he hits the wall he hits the wall because the boss tells him, you know what, I hired you so that you do um, the operations like you operate on people and I don't want you talking into our stuff. So so how can And I, I guess that this is this is very common in most workplaces that people are hired to do certain work, but nobody asks them what else they think. So, so how can people overcome this? Yeah, great question. Well, there's going to be a transition period. And this is why at the Institute for Humane Education, we focus on the education system, because that is the system that underlies every other societal system. So if we truly achieve our goals and we make the solutionary framework foundational to schools across the world, then young people are going to learn this. They're going to graduate thinking this way and they are going to start new businesses and start different approaches. So yeah, there's going to be that conflict with the sort of old guard that doesn't think this way yet and young people who have learned to think this way and who are basically saying, okay, Uh, we're going to create a new system then. And um, and so, yeah, there, there are going to be some kinks. It's not going to be a smooth and easy transition. But if we don't change the education system and make it solutionary focused and truly embed this solutionary framework within the curriculum, then it's going to be uh, it's going to just be a constant battle. But if we do that and if we really educate a generation of solutionaries, everything is going to fall into place 
maybe not easily, but over time. And how long do you think this transition will take? <laughs> well, I don't, I, you know, I would have liked to think that I could have put myself out of work before now, but um, it's a longer challenge than I thought. I mean, the <laughs> education system itself is just a really old-fashioned, entrenched system that is very difficult to change. So um, I don't know. I really don't know. And um, it can definitely be disheartening at times. Um, but the way I perceive it is we're taking, we're often taking two steps forward and one step back, and we have to pay attention to the steps forward that we're taking. Um, but There, it, there's certainly the possibility that it could happen really quickly. Sometimes change does happen really quickly. You know, we see all these, I mean, we're seeing in the United States so many steps back. You know, there's so much backlash to, to steps forward. And, um, and we have to still see those steps forward and we have to persevere because it, it really could happen very quickly that suddenly it all takes hold and, and, we do things differently. We have to. I mean, we don't really, we have, the alternative is, is potentially pretty grim. So I can see hope in the <clears throat> young people who, who will have access uh, to the, to these courses, but then the vast majority of people are people who, who were brought up in the old fashion um, thinking way. And they work in workplaces where, which are, narrow-minded so so is there any way for you know many people see their job as pure breadwinning like oh gosh it's monday again and i have to go to work and finally it's 5 p.m i can go home so so they don't even see any purpose or any service in their work so any any thoughts on that like what about these people If these people are listening, although that I'm guessing that these people are not listening, but if if listeners are no people like this, I think all we need to do is crack the surface just a little bit. And people are worried about the future, their future, the future for their kids. Um, and if we can provide meaning and hope and purpose for people, we're going to have more engagement. And I think that that's what this approach does. And, and we're seeing this solutionary framework taking hold in lots of different places. And just last week, um, our executive director, Steve Cochran, had a conversation with a teacher in a refugee camp in Kenya, where there are 200,000 refugees. And they have three teachers right now who are going through our solutionary micro-credential program in order to bring the solutionary framework to these refugees. So this isn't something that is only happening in wealthy countries and in wealthy schools. Although, you know, we're seeing the solutionary framework happening in, in such schools, But, you know, there's an entire school in India that has embraced this solutionary approach and is a solutionary school. So I would say that this can take root anywhere. You know, if you can see it taking root in a 
relatively wealthy county in um, the United States, San Mateo County, which is between San Francisco and Palo Alto, and deeply taking root in the entire county that serves 113,000 students, and you can also see it taking root in a refugee camp in Kenya, then you know that this concept and this approach can happen everywhere. And what about most students in other countries who don't have access to humane education? How can such people become solutionaries if they can never hear about it? We have to make sure they hear about it. We have to reach their the these countries. We have to reach these teachers. And we hear from people all over the world. I mean, you're in the Czech Republic and we're talking to you, right? So people in all corners of the globe are learning about us. And we just have to, and I, I'm when I say about us, I don't mean to sound like, oh, we have the only answer and it's just us. I mean, we have a graduate program that has graduated more than 200 people and they're all doing this kind of work in different places around the world, mostly in the US and Canada, but around the world. And so the more people who learn about this and then bring it into their communities and their countries and their schools, the more, the quicker this will change. And what do you think is more effective to to be a solutionary who is trying to change the system like Bruce or to be a teacher like those graduate students who teach other uh, students to become solutionaries? Well, that's a good, that's a really interesting question, Veronica, but ultimately it comes back to me asking those three questions of everybody. What are you passionate about? What do you care about changing? What are you good at? And what do you love to do? If you are not uh, interested in being an educator yourself, and then you shouldn't do that, right? So we are trying to change the education system, and we hope more people will be humane educators who do this. But if that's not any, you know, anybody who's listening to this, if that isn't what they're good at and what they love to do, but let's say they they may love politics and be really good at mediating and negotiating, well, become a politician and, you know, change uh, the policies and the laws where you live. Um, if somebody is listening and they are uh, an engineer or an inventor, well, invent something that can change a system. You know, there's just a million ways to be a solutionary. And it, it comes down to asking oneself those questions so you are set on the right path. And there is no one way. I really like the, these three questions. And I also did that exercise. And I eventually came um, to the conclusion that um, I, I like to organize um, meetups and I, I like networking, but I also like writing. So... So maybe it will be something at the intersection of that. Let's see. And well, you're a solutionary journalist. You know that you discovered like this place and that's what you're doing. I mean, this podcast is your solutionary work and that's what everybody has to find for themselves. And 
um, we just want a lot of people to be humane educators so that we can spread this message and and this process. So while I, I just said, you know, there's no one way to be a solutionary, there there isn't, but there is a process. And that process, everybody can go through and everybody can find it on our website. And can you sum up the process? Sure. So the process is identifying an issue that you care about, researching it thoroughly, reaching out to stakeholders to understand the different perspectives around that problem, um, understanding the causes, the deep root and systemic causes of that problem, and then finding leverage points where a small change can lead to a big change, and then coming up with some solutionary ideas that that draw on a, a strong leverage point and then implementing those ideas and assessing them and learning from them and then iterating and continuing the process. And so that whole solutionary process, which is a 14-step process divided into four phases, is all on our website. So if you go to our website, just spend time there. Again, it's humaneeducation.org. And you, we even have some short videos. Uh, we have one on what is humane education. We have one on um, how to become a becoming a solutionary and and watch and learn and share and then share with us what you do because and share obviously with you, Veronica, because you can then elevate the voices of all these solutionaries. You're right. Um Just thinking about like this 14 uh, point process, it, it led me to think that you can't be a solutionary on your own, right? You 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 need other people. So so how do you find other people to to get involved in the issue that you care about? Well, if you're a student in school, of course, you're gonna have your classmates. But if you're an individual listening to this and you're thinking I'm 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 isolated, you know, it doesn't take long if you care about an issue to find through internet searches other organizations and people who care about that issue. Um, you know, you can find people in your own community by posting a notice or doing a meetup. I mean, it's so easy to find people who care about things that you care about today. It does require a little bit of extroversion. So for an introvert, it might be a little bit challenging, but, um, but you can find people online and the next thing you know, you're working together and you have community and you feel hope. And that hope is not you know, airy-fairy hope. It's it's evidence-based optimism based on the successes of the work that you do. I have a couple of organizations that I like, including you. <laughs> so so that's really nice. Um, I'm thinking that you, you also mentioned that you can be a solutionary in your approach to in, in educating your children. So I'm wondering, how would you bring up your child today? Well, I think... From a young age, not not necessarily from first grade. I think, I wrote a book called Above All, Be Kind, Raising a Humane Child in Challenging Times. And if I were revising that book, I would add more solutionary activities. But I think that with my, with very young children, I would still focus on falling in love with what is good in the world, falling in love with nature, falling in love with animals, 
experiencing compassion and appreciation for people who are doing good, reading stories about really wonderful, good people, and um, and and really nurturing that reverence and awe and wonder. That ultimately translates into then teaching our children how to take responsibility in age-appropriate ways and helping them to become solutionaries and really allowing... Uh, allowing them to follow their passions and what they love and noticing what it is and and then helping them as they get older to engage in this solutionary work. Um, that's what I do. It's not all that different from what I, I, I wrote about, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And did you, did you bring up your child in, in that way? Yeah, I tried to. Um, I definitely tried to, but I didn't have the solutionary framework yet. Um, so I had the humane education um, framework. And so, you know, he learned in age-appropriate ways about issues in the world. And, and he, you know, I, I taught him to be engaged with those and make a difference. Um, but now I would have so much better tools for systems thinking and finding the causes and then engaging with solving a problem as opposed to just personally divesting from participating. So, you know, he grew up, he grew up um, as, you know, somebody we went to the thrift shop instead of buying new clothes. And, you know, he learned how we could have a smaller footprint. And, you know, he grew up um, uh, as a vegan child uh, in a in a meat-based culture. So there was that. But what I would focus on differently now is engaging in the systems changing um, as much or even more so than the personal choice making. It leads me to another question. Um, after, after having watched... Um all your six TED Talks, I started thinking about um, where does my meat come from or dairy products and are the, are the, is the cosmetics that I use tested on animals? Where does the cotton come from? Is it organic or were some people treated badly during the production? And then it got just so overwhelming. Like, honestly, it, I, my head was so full of thoughts for like two weeks until a friend told me that it's a long process. You can't do everything at once. Like you can't just not eat meat and only buy um, products that are from a local farm and and uh, only use cosmetic and not use palm oil. Like all of these things, start doing all of these things um, one day and that because eventually it's just so hard. So... Um, You said that um, having these choices actually makes you a freer person, but I didn't agree because I suddenly felt so overwhelmed and so it, it was just so hard. Like I had to think about every single thing that we have in the fridge, every single thing that I have in the bathroom and then I just felt so bad about myself, you know. So. Can you help me out? <laughs> yes. It, so it definitely can be overwhelming if we um, if if we go down that rabbit hole of every single choice we make. It can. I mean, there are some simple ways to make that easier, but I do think that 
the solutionary approach to acting to change systems helps to ease the um, inner conflict when we know that we're participating in systems that we don't agree with. So we, you know, I'm on my computer talking to you right now, and my computer is, you know, filled with components that were mined in unsustainable ways. You know, it's not going to last all that long. You know, it, it, it's not like, um, you know, our, our washing machine that we bought 30 something years ago that's still going strong. You know, computers won't do that. And then how will they be disassembled? Who will be disassembling them? You know, will children be involved in using toxic, you know, disassembling computers that have toxic components? That is overwhelming because I cannot buy a computer that is sustainable and humane. They don't exist yet. So I can do what I do and I can educate others to be solutionaries and know that somebody listening right now could be that next person who devises new systems, um, who, you know, it, who creates the, the, the new clothing line that is really sustainable and humane or the, new, the food uh, systems like we were talking about earlier. And so then I don't have to um, live with that inner conflict. So I think we have to be gentle with ourselves, but also hold ourselves accountable for what we can change. So finding that balance, right? Like it's not good to, you know, berate oneself and feel guilty, but guilt is often a sign that, you know, we're not, you, you know, we are causing harm and we we want to feel a little bit guilty. I'm not one of those people who thinks like, oh, guilt is just a terrible emotion. No, I think guilt is, you know, we participate, we caused harm. If we don't feel a little guilty, what's going to motivate us to change that behavior? So I don't think guilt is just necessarily bad. Like, I sometimes hear, I think we just have to find that balance. So we don't want to feel um, overwhelmed with shame and guilt, but we do want to feel like, yes, I, I am responsible for, for doing um, something. And what is that something going to be? What changes can I make? Um, how can I participate in some way? And then the, we do start to feel better about ourselves, um, and hopefully you you did feel that in terms of thinking like I am going to be a solutions journalist, right? That that by doing that you are make you can feel good about yourself and um, and hopefully less overwhelmed because you're participating in positive change. I completely forgot about being a solutions journalist while I was looking um, um, in the fridge <laughs> at all the dairy products. But yeah, you're right. It's good to think, it's good to work on changing a system and be a bit kind uh, on yourself, but at the same time, adjust the the lifestyle a bit. So for example, I, I try to find, um, we have the zero waste store and besides offering produce, like you, you can just go there and, and buy anything. They also have a fridge and they have, they have milk. And even, I, I even found out that they had cottage cheese and yogurt and you can order things from there. So that's, that's, that's good for me. Like I, I feel good with that much better than, um, than knowing that I am buying dairy products, um, from this, these massive farm factories where they where they just keep the cows and they're 
breastfeeding until they they get the infection and they die so so these cows are even though it's not vegan at least these cows are running freely in the on the meadows so so that's that's better for me yeah and then you know who knows the next step could be that you buy oat milk or or hemp milk or or some other dairy um that you find even more sustainable and more aligned with your values as you learn more and i think you're right that to the degree that we can make choices that are aligned with our values that's really important because by itself it won't create um all the change we want but the more people who choose to either go to that zero waste store or buy the the oat milk in instead of the cow's milk creates a, a bigger demand for it and and then that bigger demand creates some of the system change um and the the degree to which we can make choices that are aligned with our values is also the degree to which we have integrity as other people um see us and hopefully learn from us and you know if we're not walking our talk or at least trying to what's going to motivate them to try you know nobody wants to be perceived as a hypocrite and so this is a both and not an either or and so what what choices do you make in terms of like uh, buying clothes food cosmetics well I, i don't wear makeup so i don't have that choice um and i buy most of my clothes in um thrift shops you know secondhand so like this sweater i got years ago in a secondhand shop um you know i i already mentioned my dietary choices are vegan um so i i don't need animal products and um but i live in a rural area and so that necessitates driving um i have a hybrid car but it still burns gasoline and and i i you know go on outings to go hiking and i'm burning gasoline to do that so i'm i'm aware of my own imperfections um and my lack of of living as fully as i could according to my own values but one of the things that i learn from that is to not judge other people um because i know how hard it is um because i make mis- not so much mistakes but i don't live as fully aligned with my own values as i would like to and so i want to change the system so that it's easier you know if it were if i could um live in a rural area where i didn't have to burn gasoline at all uh that would be fantastic and um you know i look forward to when i can have an electric vehicle that is where the electricity is supplied by sustainable renewable energy as opposed to uh other forms of energy and 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 then i will be able to live with that much more integrity so we need more of those uh engineers and more of those inventors and more of those scientists working in that sector and that's why we need to educate that generation of solutionaries. Okay, we need to change the systems but we also need to be gentle and not not judgmental. All right. So um so thank you very much for the interview. It was inspiring and I hope to apply the solutionary framework to my work. Thank you very much. You're so welcome. It's um 
It's been a pleasure, and I'm so grateful to you for being a solutionary journalist. Thank you. If you want to learn more about the solutionary framework, go to the website humaneeducation.org where you can read about the principles of humane education and where you can download a copy of Solutionary Guidebook for free. Thanks so much for listening to Nature Solutionaries. You can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts or Stitcher. And if you like this episode, I would be really grateful if you could write a review or share the podcast on your social media. This will help other people find the show. For more podcasts, you can visit my website veronikaperkova.com slash podcast. I'm Veronika Perkova and I look forward to talking to you soon.